Number nine, 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 number nine. Welcome to the ninth podcast with me, Rob Long, Jonah Goldberg, and John Podoritz. People are calling it the Glop podcast, uh, I guess Goldberg, Long, Podoritz put together. But I don't like that for some reason because it sounds, um, uh, well, <laughs> maybe it sounds too much like the truth. Uh, I am a Rob Long. I'm coming to you from sunny Southern California. On the line with me, as always, is Jonah Goldberg from Washington, D.C. Jonah, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Are, are we going to play number nine? Number yeah, nine. Number nine. <laughs> if we could get the stereo, the channels to go, you know, because I always thought that kind of freaked me out that 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 Beatles song in Revolution, Revolution number nine. It, um, I mean, in on the White Album, it goes, you know, from left to right channels. So if you listen to it, it sounded like John Lennon, you know, the early, late '60s John Lennon was whispering in, 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 you know, in alternate ears. Well, with you here, you know. And then you go to me and John, it goes from left to right. So that kind of works. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, speaking of John, uh, on the line with us from New York City, John Podoritz. John, how are you? I'm well. How are you guys? Uh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing We're fine. We're about to get I mean, eight feet of snow, eight, 22 feet of snow. <laughs> Wait, is it really snowing? 87 feet of snow. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a nightmare. Is it really snowing? Well, there? it's global snowing. Is it snowing in New York no, City? No, it's not snowing. It's not snowing. But there's, but uh, the latest weather report suggests that we could get um, two to thirty-eight inches of snow. Wow, that's that's uh, what we call a delta. That's a swing. We call that. <laughs> you know, because there's uh, so much global uh, disruption in the weather patterns that you know it's February and there's going to be snow. And, the, and we and have the, to do something about this. And the snow seems to debilitate that town. I have to say. I mean, all this talk about uh, uh, you know the big gulps and and uh, fat fo- fatty foods and all that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, your your mayor is taking his eye off the actual mayor's job, which is no, to make you, sure oh, the snow really? gets you, taken. You away. think? Yeah. You think? Uh, yeah. No, I, yeah. <laughs> he uh, he uh, he's a gem. And speaking speaking of mayors, we you recent we all recently lost Ed Koch, who was uh, at least at least my idea growing up because I didn't he was the first New York City mayor I was ever aware of. He was the quintessential mayor of a city. You know, he felt like a real mayor. Well, he was a he was like a mayor out of uh, out of central casting. That's one of the yeah. reasons that he was so successful in his first term, which was seventy eight to eighty two. He was this, uh, you know, guy with an accent, uh, you know, balding, not very attractive, uh, you know, who um, who had this sort of uh, infectious, no nonsense way of talking, um, and uh, and he was sort of the last uh, central casting, right. one of the last central casting politicians. That we've ever had, if you think about it, you know. Hey, Jonah, don't you think mayors? There should be. We should have more. Like the mayors should be colorful. And why don't mayors become? Why don't more mayors become president? Um, because they're colorful. Well, because in part, because if you're colorful, you're parochial by definition, right? And I mean, I guess the last mayor um, that people really talked about being a presidential hopeful was John Lindsay. 
Um, and I actually Man. just and Rudy, Rudy, Julian, and Rudy. I was Rudy. And that's Rudy. true. But one of the reasons why Rudy had it against him was because he seems parochial. I mean, he sort of had the same problem that Rick Perry had. Is that Rick Perry seemed to be running for the president of Texas, and um, I think that uh, uh, so I think that's sort of part of it is just that that you become so branded with the city that people can't imagine you caring about the rest of the country as much. Um, also, just cities are less colorful than they used to be. I mean, uh, cities used yeah. to be these these much more interesting places. And even New York is facing the wave. Uh, you know, I mean, New York is much tougher and will, will last longer as a distinct place than most anywhere else. But it's, it's you know, it's very depressing to me when I come home to come back to New York and see all of the pottery barns and chain stores, which yeah. we did not have in New York growing up. You know, it's homogenization is hitting New York. It, I remember um – I think I've already told the story. I remember like talking years ago to a friend of mine from New York City, and I was going to New York City. I hadn't been there in a while, um, and this is a long time ago, but it just dates me. But he said to me on the phone, he said, oh, you're going to love New York now. We have a thing here called Starbucks, and we, it's co- there's coffee. It's wonderful coffee. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know about Starbucks. He goes, no, 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 this is in, in New York. It's called Starbucks, and it's this great coffee. And, and I said, hey, listen. I, under, I know about Starbucks. They have 10 of them, uh, one around the corner from my house here in Santa Monica. And he actually said, no, no, that must be a different one. This is the New York one. <laughs> and it was the first sign that people in New York City were losing touch. And then I remember opening up the front page of the New York Times and seeing – and unfolding the New York Times, seeing on the front page uh, a story about the opening of the Whole Foods – in the mall there, in the in the in the Time Warner Center, which is a mall, by the way, that's what that is. You can call it anything you want, but on Columbus Circle in, in Manhattan, which used to be the most interesting city in the world, they they put an in town mall. It's like Irvine. They, they may as well be Orange County, and there's a, a Whole Foods there, and it, it was covered by the New York Times like a like a hometown like a like a circular, like one of those uh, uh, small town newspapers. Big store opens in the center of town, and uh, I thought, well, that's it. New York City has just gone the way of um, every every other place. Well, you know the neighborhood that uh, that Jonah and I grew up in, where I where I now live again as an adult. Um, which you, was you a would neighborhood of an adult. That's good. Yeah, did, did you put I, air quotes around adults there? <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm about to turn fifty two, so if I have to put air quotes around adult, I I, I can't imagine how you, you know, how, what how what you, term. Uh, how are you handling that, John? The fifty two part. Well. Um, Mostly, I'm handling it badly because I have a two-year-old who wakes up at five o'clock in the morning, and I, I really, uh, I, if I were 25, I could handle it a little better than I can at uh, 52, where I find that I, I need my sleep a little more. You but feel what, it? What, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'll let you finish, but I want to ask you a question after that. Go ahead. So I was going to say that this, the neighborhood, the Upper West Side, where where I live and where where Jonah grew up. Um, uh, and where I grew up um, was, you know, in the '60s, it was for most of its, yeah, you know, most of its history, a neighborhood of small middle-class shopkeepers, you know, who had stationary stores and butcher stores and little, you know, clothing boutiques and, uh, uh, you know, and the like, a very homey. Um, uh, you know, it was a middle-class shopkeepers. And, you know, now, uh, 10, 15 years after that sort of period of New York ended, mostly what it is is banks and drugstores. 
um, banks having a lot of uh, wanting essentially a lot of um, frontage on the street essentially as kind of street advertising um, and uh, and and in that sense you know the the definition of the neighborhoods of New York City and neighborhoods are really the key to understanding cities. Chicago was a city of neighborhoods. New York was a city of neighborhoods. The homogenization of the neighborhoods really changes the definition of a city. You know, it's like living on the Upper West Side versus living in Greenwich Village or Chelsea or these various other places. It doesn't make that much difference. Um, and it used to make a lot of difference. It made a lot of difference ethnically. It made a lot of difference in terms of class. It made a lot of difference in terms of income. And a lot of that is gone. And there is this kind of homogenized effect, not all that dissimilar from American suburbs, you know, which, which, have, a homo- which have a culturally homogenizing effect because they end up all having the same stores, the same right. fast food restaurants. Um, but I, you know, I, I have to say, like, I don't. I mean, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to, as sort of urban sophisticate, not like that. But I find that sometimes very comforting. But when I drive across the country, as I do, every now and then, it's kind of nice to know that there's a that I, I know what this restaurant is. I know, I know if I pass a Walmart, I know exactly what's in that Walmart. I know kind of where it is too. I can stop and get whatever I want. So I'm. I'm I'm not totally against that. Oh, absolutely. That. Absolutely. It's just, it's just an interesting change but I, but, but, in yeah, the nature of things. First of all, among other things, you know, one of the things about Walmart with all the whining and complaining and, and, and the horrors that Walmart has visited oh, yeah. on, the, on, on, you know, on American towns and all that is uh, it's high-quality goods at low prices um, and, and you can get everything that you need uh, at – there's a reason that all those small shopkeepers were driven out of business by Walmart. It's because Walmart's better, it, and <laughs> its stuff is better, and it's less expensive. I, I always say that about Hollywood. I mean, what's happening in Hollywood now? I mean, one of our sponsors. I'm not, I don't have to do a pitch for it, but I'll just tell you if you're listening. One of our sponsors is Netflix, and if you go to Netflix.com/slash/ricochet, you get a free 30-day trial for Netflix streaming. It's really worth it. But but people in Hollywood are obsessed with Netflix and Amazon too. You know, Amazon is making these gigantic moves in scripted programming. Right? They're they're making TV shows that are brand new. Amazon is, and, and so is Netflix. And so Netflix too. Netflix this this the week, House, Netflix House premiered cards, yeah. its House of Cards. You know. Um, with- yeah, with Kevin Spacey. And the, the, the theory there, I mean, people in Hollywood are divided, uh, not really divided. Mostly they think it's good, but they don't really know why it's good. And they just think it's good because there's one more person competing. And co- competition, if you're a certain kind of liberal, is good sometimes. And uh, But I, really what it is is the Walmartization of entertainment where like you're going to be able to get everything you want on the internet and the old legacy providers, the people who have been paying me outrageous money for really too long, um, are going to are gonna feel a, a real – a very, very – the pinch they've already been feeling is going to get tighter and tighter. And I, yeah. I think that's a good thing. Jonah, go ahead. Well, Sorry. I, I, a couple of points. One, um, I, I'm deeply sympathetic to letting people buy better stuff at cheaper prices. Um, I remember when I lived in Prague – after college and there were all of these guys who sort of had gone native and they wanted to keep it Prague land. You know, they wanted to keep it this sort of Epcot center. Yeah. The sort of Epcot center, you know, uh, left bank of the nineties kind of vibe going. And they were so horrified by the idea of McDonald's coming to Prague. And it was funny whenever you talk to like normal Czechs, their response always was, 
Well, that's pretty easy for you to say because you're going to go home and this is sort of a kitschy place for you to visit and, and spend some time. But I just spent 40 years where the only vegetables I had had been canned and pickled 30 years ago. Right. And, you know, that they kind of liked, <laughs> liked the idea of being able to have hot, fast food, you know, and they felt like they had been missing a lot of stuff. But um, at the same time, you know, people could only live, you know, this is on all my brain because of politics, but, you know, the way Obama and the liberals these days keep talking about America as if it's one community um, really starts to rankle. The, the reality is, is that you live in one community. The, the place where you live is the community that you live in. And communities are formed by the people you talk to in the morning, the people you buy your coffee from, the people you buy your newspaper from, the people you talk to, you know, on when you drop off your kid at school or when you're where you, uh, you know, you pick up your dry cleaning. I mean, your neighbors are your only real neighbors. And um, and the homogenization thing is a little depressing to me because it, it loses the distinctiveness. I will say that it seems to me and John would know this better than I that. There are that you still have that neighborhoody thing in New York in the boroughs. Um, yeah, I, I, it's I've experienced that. It's a Manhattan yeah, but, problem, but you right? know Manhattan. why? You know why you have a neighborhoody thing in the boroughs because of immigration, because of immigrants. Right. Immigrants, uh, you know, the, the the really neighborhoody places, the places that still have a very ethnic uh, right. tint to them. You know, Greeks, uh, Asians, Chinese, Koreans, Vietnamese. Um, the different, uh, the different Latinos, you know, the, the Dominicans, the Cubans, Puerto Ricans, yeah. um, and they, and they, you know, and there are, and there are different gradations and subtle differences. And, and that's where, that's where neighborhoodism comes from. And it probably always was really in the end, if you think about cities, Chicago, which is the great city of neighborhoods, there was the, there were the Polish neighborhoods of the West. There were the Jewish neighborhoods of the North. There were the, you know, um, Irish Catholic neighborhoods of the Southwest and that kind of thing. So there, it's, um, it, you know, the, the homogenization is in part a cultural homogenization based on uh, assimilation and acculturation so that everybody sort of wants the same things in part because people don't have the differing tastes that they brought with them to the United States and that, you know, and that remain. Now that's all, that's another form of coloration. So on the Upper West Side, which was once a very Jewish neighborhood, is again a Jewish neighborhood, though mostly because a lot of Orthodox Jews live there. But, you know, what there is there is a fake old-time deli, you know, yeah, <laughs> sort of like right, a, right, new, right. a new deli where you can get, you know, brisket and matzo ball soup. But it was built 10 years ago. It's not 100 years old. Um, you know, I like Artie's. But I, one one yeah. last story. I remember coming home in the, night, in the early 1990s at some point. Maybe John remembers when this exactly happened. But I remember when you know, the, I grew up on 84th and Broadway. And when I was a kid, it was you know, head shops and delis and that kind of thing. And now there's a Godiva chocolates and a Coach store and yeah. a Victoria's <laughs> right. Secret downstairs. Right. And I remember when the Victoria's Secret was coming in and there was this huge hullabaloo about it. And I was asking my dad about it, and he was saying how much he loved the whole controversy because it was basically this impromptu coalition of Hasidic Jews and communists who <laughs> hated the place. <laughs> and the, 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 the hardcore Jews didn't like the idea of pictures of people – of women in their scantily clad underwear, and the communists didn't like capitalism. And uh, the compromise they came up with is – my understanding it's still in effect – 
is that that's one of the few Victoria's Secrets where you don't actually you're not allowed to have full on boudoir shots in the display windows. That's true, just- but it's a block. It's a block from my house. You know, this raises an even more interesting thing that's gone on this week. I think, and a lot of it has to do again with a store on the Upper West Side, meaning Barnes and Noble, the superstore, the bookstore. In the, again, in that in that general area, uh, in the in the in the mid eighties, the uh, villain Barnes, from You've Got Mail, just by right. The way. So that, that Barnes and Noble, there, Barnes and Noble opened a a massive superstore, um, its first great superstore um, uh, on Broadway and Eighty Third Street, which is still there. And yeah, the plot of um, You've Got Mail, the Nora Ephron movie with, um, with Tom Hanks and, and Meg Ryan uh, evokes a fight in the neighborhood between the arrival of Barnes & Noble and a bookstore two doors down that was called Shakespeare and Company. Now, here's, what, here's what's interesting that's going on now. So the whole thing was evil Barnes & Noble comes in, takes up all the square footage, and it's going to drive these uh, independents out of business. Well, uh, last week, Barnes & Noble announced that it was closing 250 of its stores uh, nationwide over the next two years in order to reduce its you know, real estate footprint and to get itself on a more solid footing. And suddenly everybody who 20 years ago was crying and weeping over the violence done by Barnes & Noble to the independent bookseller right. was really the heart <laughs> are publishing articles on the Huffington Post, mind you. <laughs> Of all articles places. in the Huffington Post about the tragedy <laughs> yeah. of the loss of the Barnes and Noble in Union Station in D.C., the loss of the Barnes and Noble it's in Georgetown. This is terrible. Uh, and there's a there. Somebody published a very good piece about how Walden Books, which was a precursor to Barnes and Noble, when it opened in Skokie, Illinois, in the shopping center near his house, how. It was the first suburban, you know, he found a book by the rock critic Grail Marcus. And this was the first chance to find books in the suburbs. And so here we are. Yeah. 2013. Yeah. You you just mentioned you were old, right? Well, I'm old too because I can remember when the great villain before Barnes & Noble was Walden Books. And the argument for Shakespeare and Company and the independent bookstores was like, well, you know, they don't have – all they carry is bestsellers and romance novels. We have a selection. We have the selection. That's what they, that, that was always yeah. the argument. We have a selection. We are you – know, we stand up for the written word. And right around the time that the uh, Salman Rushdie thing happened when he uh, published his Tannic Verses and the Iranian – the then crazy Iranians, thank God we're taking care of them. Uh, uh, issued a fatwa against him uh, because apparently back then um, there were these Islamic fundamentalists. This is now twenty plus years ago. Um, Islamic years fundamentalists ago. who who, uh, who wanted to kill uh, people. Um, thank God we took care of them. Uh, uh, <laughs> they they uh, they they um, uh, Walden Books took the took satanic verses off the shelves. You, if you came into Walden Books and you had it and you wanted it, you could ask for it, but they weren't going to put it in the, on the shelf because they thought that the crazy Islamists would bomb. Um, you know, Walden Books and killed the 17-year-old kid who worked there. And you would have thought it was Kristallnacht. I mean, you would have thought – and the way the left talked about it and the little book, little prissy little independent bookstore owners talked about it was just hilarious, especially if you'd ever gone to uh, – the book – Shakespeare and Company was a terrible bookstore. Oh, it was. The so great they were thing jerks. about Shakespeare and Company. Unbelievable jerks in that story. Unbelievable the, jerks. The and, they, and, they, and they censored books. I remember going in there years ago. I think I had just – 
I just decided that maybe – I'm really literally – I think I was at the beginning of my journey to, to rhino squishhood, <laughs> and, you know, my, the, great, the great move to the center. And, um, <laughs> and I think I asked for some I, – I think I asked for a Buckley book that was you know, probably one of the sailing books. And uh, I got a snooty little – we don't carry that here. Oh, not just that. The other great thing that Shakespeare and Company did – um, was that they sealed their books in plastic so that you couldn't thumb through them. Uh, why they did this, I, I don't know, but they didn't want you, you know, spending too much time looking at books in their bookstore. Right. Um, so, of course, the selection thing was blown out of the water by the Barnes & Noble Superstore, which ended up having everything. kind of selection that was only possible at, you know, great university Bookstores, uh, you know, previously, or you know, there are one bookstore in every city that was actually pretty decent, um, and suddenly there were decent bookstores all over the United States. <laughs> you know, um, there is a problem uh, with the closure of Barnes and Nobles and with these with these uh, real bookstores in favor of you know the the, the Amazon, the Nook, and the Kindle, and all of that. Uh, you know, the problem is that it, it becomes very hard uh, to have um, sort of the fortuitous discovery of a book that you, you don't – you never heard of. Right. Uh, something that you might sort of – that, you know, your, your eye is caught by a jacket and you look at it and you find it and you, you know, you spend five minutes reading it. Now, uh, Amazon, you know, does – makes an effort at this. You know, you can read a sample – you can, but you know there is a there is as you were saying about Hollywood. A lot of this is getting reordered. How we how we interact with um, you know and how that's all going to change. How we sample and experience the cultural products that we consume is undergoing this massive change, and nobody really knows how it's going to work. But it's strange. Um, it is. It brings up weird little things. Like I, I was, uh, I was behind game of, I was behind game of Thrones. Right. And so I wanted to catch up on game of Thrones. We already talked about it, but, uh, but I was watching them on the plane. I was flying somewhere. I was watching them play on my iPad and I suddenly was aware that, um, you know, I have an aisle seat and I'm watching a very, you know, there's a pretty explicit sexual scene and that everyone in, around me can see that, including the kids. It's, it was weird. It was like, like suddenly I had to think, oh, wait, I should, I should not be watching this. The way now we watch TV, it's like so, it's so personal. I right. want to watch this one show. It's not like we're watching it together, that you forget that actually half the time you are in public. Um, uh, it's, it's a very different way to, to do it. Netflix has not broken out the numbers for the premiere of House of Cards, um, although I suspect they'll have to in the next uh, week or two because people are, are incredibly interested. But if you're Netflix or you're Amazon, it doesn't really matter uh, how many people – I mean you, know, you want – obviously you want a lot of people to watch it. What you really want to do is bring a lot of people to your network and um, bring a lot of people here. You want, you want them to show up. Uh, be watching something that's a destination kind of TV show, and while they're there in a you know in the other picks you know thing, you'll be pushing them other stuff. Now Netflix is going to be pushing them other movies they could rent, uh, or other new movies they can put in their queue, or all that stuff that Netflix does, um, which makes it a successful company. But if you're Amazon, you could be saying, "Hey, do you have enough toothpaste? We can we can get you toothpaste." Uh, you, you have an Amazon Prime subscription, which means that uh, shipping is free. So what what do you need while you're watching this TV show? Right. 
you can you can or be ordering your groceries. You can be ordering uh, you know more shampoo and toilet paper and you know a, a copy of the latest commentary magazine and whatever else we sell because they sell everything, which is pretty great. I mean I that's the awesome. truth. But you know the other another interesting ask. Uh, the other day I ran into a, a, a journalist that I had worked with like ten fifteen years ago. Um, who writes for glossy magazines, and you know she was saying, "Oh, you know, it's all everything. It's just so hard now. Everything is so hard now. And what's going to happen? Everything is so hard now." And I thought, you know, what was really interesting is when I got into journalism thirty years ago, and I went to work at Time Magazine in nineteen eighty two. The truth is, the great secret when you hear a lot of this whining from you know legacy journal- journalists about how everything is changing so much is. These were pretty sweet lives. I mean, sometimes you worked hard, but there was a lot of support, a lot of, you know, a lot of help, a lot of expense accounts. You wrote one thing a week or you maybe wrote two things a week. You did nothing to promote them. You did nothing to you just sort of collected your check and you were part of a big fat happy organization. And now it's a lot more work to be to do what you do if you're a writer. You have to promote yourself, you promote yourself on Twitter, you promote yourself on Facebook, you do this, you do that, you try to get attention for what you're doing. Writers had this mystical period or journalists had this mystical period where they didn't have to do anything because everything they worked for was a monopoly and had a monopoly control and made colossal sums of money and they and and the, the organizations were fat and happy and they were fat and happy and now it's a much more entrepreneurial um, a business and it's more tiring. It's more, you know, it's a little more grueling. And on the other hand, it's also more honest because uh, if you're not willing to go out and peddle your own wares, why should anybody else? Why should anybody else say what you write or what you say is of any interest if you're not willing to do the the spade work to get it to plant it and you know and and make sure that it it it, it gets the attention. It's a sort of change in dynamic. Um, and nonetheless, you know, the dynamic ends up being much the same with the last couple of weeks. There's been a lot of talk about the, the new Republic magazine and its new owner, Chris Hughes, the, one of the founders of Facebook, um, you know, who's basically pumping an enormous amount of money into what is essentially a nonprofit institution. And so classically, once again, we have the phenomenon of a wealthy benefactor, uh, who is willing well, I mean, but the thing is, all all not all serious intellectual publications or idea based magazines basically need wealthy benefactors. They don't make money. Not, they'll never make money. They don't exist to make money. They exist to do something else. They exist to sort of you know promote ideas or you know evangelize. Couldn't for, they make money? I mean, isn't that? I mean, I have to be liberal. Well, they could, but, but since they never have, there's some point at which you have to say <laughs> they can't. Well, then maybe theoretically, they should, you know. theoretically, they could. And you know, the big experiment that's now going on, the biggest experiment now in the history of the Internet age is going on because Andrew Sullivan, the you know, neo-psychopath, yeah. um, has gone independent and asked for subscriptions to his blog. Because and he's getting them, isn't he? Well, who knows? No, he got – the first day, he got a lot of grants, essentially. He got people throwing money at him. Because they like him, but you know, if you give somebody ten thousand dollars, you're not buying a subscription. Say, Jonah, let me ask you something. Or first of you're, all, I you're gouge. giving you're giving someone Come a on, gift. You're young, you're young enough to to not have no. I mean, I don't think I really remember that entirely. But you were you're young enough to to have totally missed that era. 
of the kind of the magazine journalist and the cushy life they led. Yeah, I mean, are, uh, are you, I, uh, I kind of grew that, up in I grew up yeah. in a bit of that milieu, and you know, but I I, I missed I, I was I was trying to break into that world exactly when that world was falling apart. I'm sort of like Frodo at the end of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, although so, Jonah, in Jonah, so many ways. Jonah's dad Jonah's dad was um, you know was somebody who made his living right. selling syndicated wares to fat and happy newspapers, and yeah, and, no, my, my dad spent in a time years of in- great. Yeah, I mean, my dad spent 40 years in the syndication business, in the newspaper business, basically, in one form or another, on either editorial or on the business side. And he, you know, he told me, you know, long before Fox News, long before cable, long before Internet, he'd say, you know, I've spent my entire year managing decline because newspapers have been dying since the 1950s. Um, And, you know, the, the rate of their implosion has accelerated thanks to cable news and thanks to the Internet and all of that. But... The 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 air the the golden years of the syndication business were which was basically when syndicates got copy from all over the world and put it into newspapers all over the world has been declining ever since the the, the fall of the two newspaper town. I mean, there used to be all of these newspaper all these cities yeah. that had three, four, five newspapers with evening editions, and that's all over. And that's been over for a really long time, and, and just so that market has been shrinking ever so, since. So you missed that anyway, totally. But I guess what I I'm trying to say is, okay, how many Twitter followers do you have? I think – you're really going to do this to John? Yeah, uh, I, just, I, I just want to do the math here. I, have about I know how many he has. He has like 76,000 Twitter followers. Okay, so, is have, so is, that, is, that, is, that, is that right, Jonah, or is, or is, yeah, right, or is right. John cutting it down? No, 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 no. That's right. I think he rounded up by a couple dozen. Okay, he rounded up. So get seventy-five. Let's just say seventy-five thousand Twitter followers. Right? I have twenty-five thousand. So well, that's great. That's so, good. I, <laughs> so <laughs> two of us. I have five. I only have five thousand. So there you go. So you have seventy-five thousand Twitter followers. Yep. And of those, do you how, how many do you think? How many of that? I'm just 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 rough. This is like um back of the envelope stuff. How many of those seventy-five thousand do you think just hate you? Oh, uh, not that many. I would say maybe twenty thousand, fifteen thousand. Okay, so let's just take your number down to 60,000. Okay. And we'll say you have 60,000 followers who really who like you and, and, and want to follow you and feel a connection to you. Mm-hmm. Um, of those 60,000, how many do you think read the G file? Oh, I, I know the number. Of those 60,000, I, I mean, I, I can't tell you the overlap between Twitter and, and the thing, but the G file, I'll 30,000, let's go see, 30,000 of those Twitter followers read the G file? Okay, so you have thir- so is that how many fo- how, how many G file re- readers you have? Thirty thousand. I think there's a little bit more than that. Thirty thousand. Uh, it, it's once a week. Yeah. So do you think they would pay you fifty cents for the G file weekly? Uh, I don't know. Yes, you got to think about that, right? I mean, that's, that's that is the new economy, right? Sure. So if they pay fifty cents for G. That, that's fifteen thousand dollars a week. For those of you who don't know, the G file is this weekly. "Quote unquote" newsletter <laughs> that I do that is very silly. Right, so fifteen thousand dollars a week is sixty thousand dollars a month. Yeah, yeah that's that, a good living. That's, that's a great living. living. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I will take that. If if everyone wants to send me fifty cents a week, um, I will I will cash your checks. I mean, I you know I, I I'm not saying that that you should that you should do this, but I'm saying that that is something that I think every writer every I mean I mean I think people think about that here, um, you know. Um, 
I know the guy – some of the guys at FX, you know, they're, they're putting on the uh, Louis C.K. show, Louis, Louis. And it's very, very good and he's very, very talented. I really enjoy that show. I don't know if you guys like it or not. But oh, it's amazing. I, I, I'm a big, big, big fan of it and I think he's doing this crazy, idiosyncratic, often profane but really personal but, and funny stuff and I really – I can't say enough about it. Um, but then he you – know, but, but uh, when, then when he had a special – um, and he used to have, have specials on HBO, I think, or Comedy Central. And then once he, he thought to himself, well, I can just have a special and do it myself. And he did it himself. He had a special. He paid for the thing. He paid for the filming. He, he knows how to edit. He, you know, he edits his own show and directs his own show most of the time. So he already knows how to do all that stuff. And, uh, and he released it for five bucks and people bought it and he made a lot of money. And there's something about that that seems to me that might be the future. I mean the future certainly for people who have enough outlets – that they can get their name known and they can start selling a product. They have to, you have to do it. You got to find somebody to piggyback. I mean, Andrew Sullivan, <clears throat> if he makes any money at this, is make. I mean, really, he owes some of that money in a kind of a venture capital style to Atlantic and to the New Republic and to all the people who invested in him, probably at a loss, um, to write for them. And while he built up his, you know, to use that term, everybody uses all the time, brand. But I don't know. Maybe there's a future there. I mean, yeah, I mean, a couple, a couple quick thoughts. One. Um, you know, it was, I thought, fairly scandalous of the way the Sullivan movie, you know, and I used to be friends with Andrew Sullivan, and now I, I think John's being too easy on him when he calls him a psychopath. Um, but um, the way the media, ta- the, the media media, the people who report on the media, touted this as this incredibly exciting, brave thing that Andrew was doing, um, it took, it took uh, Breitbart to sort of point out to people that the reason he was doing this wasn't because he was taking this leap. It was because the people who had been paying him didn't think he was worth it anymore and decided not to renew his contract. (laughs) And there's a reason for that. I mean, I don't know what Andrew was being paid. I'm sure he was being overpaid. Um, Well, if they're paying him five bucks, right, they were overpaying him. Well, whatever. I don't know. He's probably he's probably worth it to them in terms of traffic for five bucks, but I don't know that he wasn't making five hundred thousand bucks. But the, the 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 regardless, they didn't think he was worth it anymore, and that's why he went out there. And I think that got when that got that got wildly undercovered because the storyline about Andrew is always that he's brave, even when he's not necessarily brave. But you know, I talked to I talked to young conservative journalist types, and I talked to normal journal, you know, J school types a lot or journalism major types a lot. And the one thing I always tell them is that this is by far the most exciting time in the last hundred year or last 50 years, let's say. I agree. To, to go into journalism. The totally only agree. problem is we don't know how to pay for it. <laughs> right. right, and, right. No, but, this, but this is the big, this is the interesting thing is that, is that if you got in, it's also true of like the, the, the academy. If you got in at the right time, if you got into journalism at the right time, which was once a relatively speaking like a lower middle class profession, being a reporter, being an editor, um, you know, in the for most of the first half of the 20th century, it was a lower middle class profession. People did not go to college. They, they, they became reporters because their parents were reporters or because, you know, for, for whatever reason – and and then it became an upper middle class profession. And if you got into it from about 1965 to about 1980, um, and you were and you were minimally competent, you really could make a very nice living without having to do all that much. And that is which, what by the way, defines away. defines my career ambition. 
forever. Right. To make an ice living without everything. having to do yeah, all that much. And, and here's the, the interesting aspect of, of life now is that it's incredibly exciting to be in media and it's, and it's hard to make a living at it. Now, it should be hard to make a living at it. It's hard to make a living at everything, right? I mean, if you open a business, you know, you have a 60% chance or a 70% chance of failure. It's not easy to sell wares and have people buy them. You know, that's not the way it works. All right, this is a good um, this is a good segue into something I kind of want to talk about. I mean, <laughs> because I don't really know what's happening, but it's and I don't know why I'm laughing at it, but it's making me laugh. Which is the 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 it, it seems like there's a, uh, a there's house cleaning going on in Fox News, mm-hmm. um, and there's a there's changes at CNN, and uh, it seems like CNN might be trying to become a little bit have have a few more conservative voices. At the same time, the Fox News is trying to have uh, fewer conservative voices. Or different conservative voices. I mean, you, is there anything in these tea leaves when uh, when Fox doesn't renew Sarah Palin or Carl or or, uh, or uh, Dick Morris? Um, and uh, and uh, I guess who did CNN? Uh, well, let me let me let me, let me let me speak about this because Jonah, uh, I I was once on the Fox payroll and I'm no longer, and Jonah is on the Fox payroll. So maybe he shouldn't. Maybe you know he may feel more. Oh no, they were going to get into more. it. You know, he may feel more uh, constrained. So I'll say this. What, what Roger Ailes did after 2008 was the equivalent of what your beloved Starbucks did when it came into New York and into most cities, which is Starbucks famously bought up the corners. That is to say it came into neighborhoods and it bought the prime real estate not only to have it, in other words, the corners, you know, the corner of 73rd and Broadway, the corner of, you know, of, 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 uh, of Devon and Pratt in Chicago, you know, um, they bought up the corners not only because they wanted them for, for, but also to box everybody else out. So he took Palin and this one and that one and the other one in, in part to make it impossible for other networks to impinge on Fox's stand, as uh, on Fox's position as the network of the right, where where, where the right needed to go. Which was now, smart. now I think um, you know there are downsides to that. Not because the right is any less popular, or because of this, or because of that, but because as it turns out, it didn't work. You know, it, he got all the bang out of that buck that he was going to get. Uh, these people are expensive. Some of them were doing embarrassing things. And um, and the Fox brand is now more powerful itself than any individual contributor. So I think that's what's going on with the house cleaning at Fox. Well, that's – I mean uh, I think you're right about the, the Fox News strategy, John. And you know, I, obviously we just had to drop off for one second while we had to get Jonah back. Jonah, are you back? You're back, right? I, I believe I'm back, yeah. So what happened was you, you, you broke your microphone in, in a rage. My, it's, a, it's, a classic, it's, a, it's a classic cautionary tale about a messy desk. Uh, the microphone fell because it was too precariously standing on a stack of books on my Oscar Madison-like desk at the American Enterprise Institute, and it broke. So anyway. They really should be built better. They shouldn't break. That's the problem with them. Oscar, Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, uh, obviously there are going to be some changes going around. Dick Morris said on CNN – I think it was last night or the night before that the reason he was fired from Fox News was because he was wrong, because he predicted, of course, uh, uh, famously predicted for for months and months and months a uh, Romney landslide, and that's why he was fired because he was wrong. Um, 
uh, you know, is, is this the kind of thing that we should be doing? I mean, we, we talked, Joan, and we were in D.C. together uh, about the bloodletting we both want. Um, uh, is, this, is this the beginning of it? Is the, I mean, if you put it this way, let me ask you something a little less com- complicated than that because I know that you are on the Fox payroll. Um, who, who's not on TV right now on our side who would be terrific? If you're CNN, if you're Jeff Zucker and you're trying to compete and you think to yourself, well, listen, if I put on a few more conservatives, I bet I could get 100 or 200,000 view- more viewers a night, which for CNN at that point is almost doubling their, their, their viewership. Um, and I know they are thinking about this. I know this, this, is, this is in fact true. But if you, were, if, you were that, if you were making those choices, who would you draft to be on TV on our side? Um, it's an interesting question. Well, I think that through, let me say about Dick Morris, I am delighted that he's no longer on Fox News. I don't think that he was fired because he was wrong. I think that he was fired because he was not telling the truth, which is different. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the, when you don't tell the truth, you are often wrong. But if you're wrong, it doesn't necessarily mean you weren't telling the truth. Right. Um, and Dick Morris... Um, you know, you could make, you could get very dangerously drunk playing a drinking game, watching him see how many times he could get the words dickmorris.com into any answer. <laughs> yeah. Or my book. Yeah. And, um, I mean, literally his latest book is the black helicopters are come coming. And it's funny, you know, I wrote a column about a month ago that got a lot of attention denouncing or, or saying that one of the problems of success that the conservative movement has had is that we have we have too many hucksters yeah. and you know this is a little, little awkward for me because i go on national review cruises with with dick morris <laughs> but no, i know i know and he's popular and there are a lot of people who like him and even people who are perfectly open to criticism of him still find him entertaining but uh i i think there's 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 very difficult. It's very difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff with people like Dick Morris, and um, and I think that you know his the his ego is such that it's obvious that the only explanation he can come up with to explain why he was fired is basically that you know he was fired because he was wrong, but he wasn't just fired because he's wrong. He was fired because he's too much of a Dick Morris, right? Uh, and you don't necessarily need to put the Morris under that. Um, <laughs> Uh, in terms of people put on TV, look, I mean, I've actually had a, basically this conversation with um, the all-powerful, you know, Roger Ailes himself. Um, not so much about who to put on TV, because obviously, um, you know, that would be the three of That's us. That's his thing, yeah. Yeah, of course, but, yes. Uh, but, you know, it, it's a fascinating thing that you have all of these muckety-muck people who, and I think I've said this on the show before, who run the media in the ratings in almost every single time slot for 11 years. And their response is, well, we got to create current TV. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because people <laughs> news is too left wing. And, I mean, it isn't left wing enough, right? And, and, and I ask, you know, because it seems to me the obvious smart play would be create a news network that is right of center, but sort of NPR tone, sort of morning Joe, but conservative. And you would have a lot of people. Morning Joe? Sort of like Morning Joe on MSNBC, but, uh-huh. but right-leaning, you know, intelligent right-leaning. And right. um, you'd have a lot of people who would turn away from Fox, not because they don't like Fox, just because they'd want to see another take, you know, yeah. and there's a repetition on Fox. And I asked Ailes about this because it seems like it's such a no-brainer thing. And, and Roger's answer was, of course, that's a smart idea, 
but they'll never do it because they cannot bring themselves to admit that the Fox model was a smart way to go or that the, that the mainstream media had been underserving um, uh, the American people from the beginning. And the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, it is very difficult for Fox to find or for, you know, a lot of institutions on the right um, to find young people out of college who um, aren't liberal, you know, and you and, and the, the people who go into journalism yeah. still are overwhelmingly liberal. But can, uh, we just, yeah, can we just for a minute just stop there for the the the, the young people out of college? There I, aren't there too many young people out of college running around as commentators right now. I seem to like maybe I'm just old, uh, uh, but uh, but I seem to be bumping into them all the time. These like little young people who uh, who who want to comment, who like want to be pundits. Yeah, no. Look, Listen, I, I, I want to. You know, Jonah's saying something very interesting, and you know, Roger. Roger saying that you know they don't want to admit the model you know was right and that they were wrong. It's not just that, it, and this is where um, not just media bias, but where where ideology plays a very central role. One of the lines that has been taken for the last thirty years about Hollywood and conservatism is how all Hollywood cares about is making money. So if you, if if conservatives could come up with good programming that could make money, then mm-hmm. fine. Then then mm-hmm. then the networks would all they want to do is make money. And that is of course nonsense. They don't only want to make money. First of all, they do only want to make money, but they also have uh, value structures that they believe in, and and things that they and and worlds that they travel in. Right. And if you and and if you said to if you said to them, uh, do a right of center morning Joe, and you could make a lot of money. Obviously, um, there are people, uh, Les Moonves, very possibly at CBS, who would say, well, I don't want to do that. I, you know, that's not why I got into this business. I'll make money some other way. I don't want to do that. I don't. This is. I. I. This is. It's against my value system. And this is where you have a very. You know. You have an interesting aspect to all of this, which is there may be a continuing market for right of center programming, movies, television shows, and all of that. But to the extent that there are still ma- mainstream gatekeepers, the mainstream gatekeepers have to be convinced. At a decibel level that barely exists, um, that there is a market that they are underserving that they could make a lot of money with. I'll give you another example of this. We were talking about, you know, Andrew Sullivan uh, 15 minutes ago. Well, there is a model of somebody who has taken um, a mainstream position, pulled back, gone entrepreneurial on the web, and is making a wild success of it, and that's Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck left Fox, started a subscription internet TV yeah. network called The Blaze. I think people pay $12 a month. So I think he's making 50 to $60 million a year. That is a, a colossal amount of money for well, a subscription it's okay. product. It's right. No, no, for a subscription product. <laughs> for a subscription it's not product, ricochet, it's pretty it's not amazing. Ricochet money. It's not ricochet money, but it's good. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that Glenn is making a small success. So, <laughs> so my point is he's done this. Where have you read about it? Why aren't you seeing stories about it? 
Where is the story that Glenn Beck is the great entrepreneurial, uh, you know, has figured out how to make money on internet television the way no one else has? You know why you're not reading it? Because they don't know about it. If they knew about it, they wouldn't want to praise it. And if they praised it, they would have to understand why it was. It wasn't just that he came up with the modality, but it's the message. It's what he's saying. It's what he's doing with it that they don't like. I've read more about HuffPo Live. Right. I have by Glenn Beck. Right, because they like HuffPo Live and they don't like Glenn Beck. And it's it's not just that they don't like Glenn Beck. It's that they hate Glenn Beck. It's not that the media doesn't like conservatives. It's not that Hollywood doesn't like conservatives. And Rob can talk about this better. They hate conservatives. They, this is what's going on in the post-election. Here's the idea. Why did Romney lose? What's going on in the right? The right is crazy. You're all insane. Look, the entire public has decided that you're insane. You're, you're crazy people. You're insane. Fine. Great. Romney lost. He got 61 million votes. He's not insane. You know, when, 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 when uh, McGovern lost in, yeah. in 1972, he got 39% right. of the vote in the country. And Nixon, who was nobody's idea of a beloved figure, got 61%. They were insane. The Democratic Party in the 1970s was insane. LaRouche there is an is effort. Hmm? LaRouche is insane. He only gets, you know, a yeah. couple million. Yeah. Right. So my point is that my point is that not only is what is going on an effort to create the conditions under which there will be no other conservative media other than Fox that is not entirely self-created, but that an effort is being made to create, to, to portray all of the right culturally as having gotten so insanely out of touch with everyone in the country that they are just – you know, poison. And if you touch them, they're poison. They're losers. They're not only bad, they're losers. And, you know, uh, emerging demographic groups are, you know, are, are disgusted by them and everyone is disgusted by them. And yet, nonetheless, though I think the election was a whopping, 61 million people voted for Romney. You know, the Republicans maintain the House. There are 30 Republican governors there are 24 states in which Republicans control both houses of the legislature. You know, this is a very complicated business. And culturally, once again, right. we find ourselves in a circumstance in which um, uh, the right is being treated as though it is some crazy, you know, uh, uh, outlier. Well, yeah, you know, hey, also, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, one thing about Fox, a lot of people don't understand. And, um, uh, and it's something that you know has, has driven it from the very beginning, is that for all the talk about how conservative it is and how right wing it is. First of all, I think the, the news that they do is is on par with any of the news that you'll find on any of the other networks. I mean, I think Brett Baer's show. I would say that I said this even before I started being on it is the best hour of news on totally. television, Absolutely. bar none. Um, Absolutely. That that said, um, a big part of Fox's success isn't that it's right of center; it's that it's populist. They have very right, explicitly, right. and you, and Brit Hume talks about this very intelligently. And Brit Hume is a brilliant guy. You know, he says one of the things that you know part of Fox's success is that they don't take their cues from the New York Times. And you know, it doesn't mean that if there's a huge story, the New York Times breaks it, they won't cover it. But just because the New York Times says something is important and puts it on the front page, doesn't mean that the guys at Fox abdicate their own news judgment. And right. it's 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 well, amazing. Popular, so many people. Most, 
Yeah, the most popular show on Fox is The O'Reilly Factor. Bill O'Reilly is a is a populist. He's not a conservative. He's not a you know Republican. He's not a Republican spokesman. He is a he is an out and out uh, populist. That show is a third as more successful than the other shows at Fox, and ten times more successful than its competition. You know, it gets three point two, three point three million people watching it a night, and. Again, this is where things get very complicated. So what is the, sto- what, what is the story? Bill O'Reilly is the great success story in television news mm-hmm. in the last 15 years. Has CBS tried to hire him to, to do a late night show You'd after think. Letterman? Exactly. Has ABC sought to have him replace Nightline? No. As far as we know, the answer is no. No one's, done, no one's tried to do anything. O'Reilly came from CBS. O'Reilly began his career as a correspondent on CBS, right. and then he was on the show Inside Edition. He comes from the mainstream media, and he is out of phase. He is out of touch. He is, he is untouchable. Well, Meanwhile, wanna... CBS hires for its morning show Charlie Rose. Who the hell is Charlie Rose? Charlie Rose is a, Charlie Rose is a, is a, you know, is a, is a PBS uh, a broadcaster. Um, also came from CBS uh, and and was on a show that nobody watched on CBS at four o'clock in the morning. Literally, do they go to uh, Brett Bear? <laughs> do they go? Right. No. You, you peel they these don't. guys off. The answer is, oh no, no, not that. Hey, but one of the things that came up on when we were, uh, John, when you and I were at, at the in DC, we missed John. John came and left. You were there that day and you took off, right? To the, I did. Uh, to the Why? conservative you know, summit. I- I, no one wanted me to have fun on stage at night and <laughs> well, sing and you know like and 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 make funny uh, jokes. I had to yeah. talk seriously. You think I wanted to do that? I don't want to talk seriously. I know you're a very serious person. I want to trade song lyrics with Mark Stein, but no, no sorry. <laughs> Top liver. These, oh, God, these decisions were up? all above my pay grade, by the way. So why to bring this up? But one of the some some somebody said, hey, um, uh. A bi- you know, they say this all the time. A billionaire, a, a conservative billionaire, should buy a studio, and that should be. They should do that. They should buy a studio and then make those movies. I mean, to me, that just always sounds terrible. But um, there but- are two conservative billionaires who do this. Phil a- Philip Anschutz runs Walden Media. He's a conservative billionaire, and Paul Singer, who runs Elliott Management and is a is a hedge fund guy, put a, a billion dollars into Relativity Media over the last ten years. So it's actually not true that conservatives haven't tried to invest money in Hollywood to make some kind of a difference. They're just not the, very good at it. Not very good at it. <laughs> well, it's not that they're not good at it. It's that there's no. It's that you know, uh, Rob. How many of you are there? There are. Um, there are know. like seven of you. There are there are more than seven, but yeah, the, there are the, the twelve question, of you. But the question is whether that's. I mean, it, that, that's just what I mean is like the the the, the definitions of what it, what a, what counts as a conservative sometimes are so seem to me to be so strict. It's like when you when you when you when you actually list the things that are you know the the ten things that are important and that and they have to be all ten. Sometimes I mean, even I feel like this, and I, I'm saying this sort of you know. Uh, in, in the spirit of, of, of that, I, I think that I am a conservative. But when I hear people talk, they, they, they the, the first, I'm, the, I'm the first person they want to throw off the boat. And so the idea of like I had to work in, the, I mean, I, I live in Hollywood, I live in Los Angeles, I work here, I look, work around a lot of different people, and and I have to get along with them. And some of them make a lot of sense to me, and that's that's obviously con- contributed to my squishitude. But 
the idea that a that a, a conservative billionaire would come together and make a conservative movie and that movie would make any money is kind of ludicrous because the yeah. audiences don't seem to be gravitating to polemics. Well, that's the no, that, well, that's, that's concern. That, like the the question is: is the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was made, the Chronicles of Narnia, which was made by Walden Media, which is owned by Philip Anschutz, who owns the Weekly Standard and the Examiner papers. Is that conservative? Well, yeah, it's con- it, in bro- in the broadest measure, it's conservative. So based on a work by C.S. Lewis, a work of Christian apologetics by C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis, it's not about how uh, you know. It's not Atlas Shrugged. I mean, that's that's the difference. Is no, you I know, saw Atlas Shrugged, shrugged by the way. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah so my, did I. If my memory serves, the, an- the the answer I gave that night, I think we'd all agree with, is that the problem is there are two problems. One is if you make a movie to be explicitly ideological. It's not. It, odds are, it's going to be not going to be very good, right? Because that's just not how art and creativity work, um, unless it's a documentary, unless you're Michael Moore. And I think we're we do pretty good on making right wing documentaries. Our problems there are about where you get them played and aired. Um, but if you're going to make you know a work of fiction that whose real point is to celebrate the free market or something, <coughs> odds are people are going to recognize it as agitprop, and it's right. And it's not the way the left, you know, in Hollywood does Hollywood. But there's a second problem, and I've been meaning to write something about this for a while. There, there's a problem on the right where a lot of people don't recognize their victories in the pop culture when they see them. You know, I mean, one example right. I always use is like the way abortion is treated on primetime television. And nobody you has never, it. yeah, nobody has an abortion, and nobody the second they. They always have to play this lip service to this idea that it's their choice, but they always choose to have the baby. And once they choose to have the baby, they start referring to it as a baby, not uterine contents, well, you know, not, yeah. you know, not, here's not a fetus. E- here's what's even more interesting. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I have a friend who's working in kind of new age publishing, and uh, he told me there's a book coming out by a shaman, a new age shaman of some kind. Um, or a new age psychotherapist in which he is coaxing forth the buried memories people have of being in the womb. Really? Oh. Yeah. And, you know, all exciting. Oh, you know, you have memories and these memories are really important. And this is where, and I think this guy has inadvertently stepped into the, probably the worst by mistake, I'm sure, uh, a new age area of inquiry, which is what do I guess they're people now in the womb remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, this sounds very pro-life to me. It's like, yeah, it does. It sounds very pro. And huh. I think it's going to make, I don't know if it's ever, no one will know. I'm going to try to dig it out when it's published and I'll, I'm going to try personally to c- celebrate a ricochet. But it's the idea that like in the, now the, 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 the arguments are so deeply embedded or at least the, maybe the movement is so deeply embedded that there are people who don't even know that they're pro-life. Yeah, I mean, but right, well, you, you, you can look at other. You look at like it's so funny. Try and think of a Hollywood action movie that supports the arguments for gun control. You know, I have a piece. I have a piece coming out in the Weekly Standard this week about the new Sylvester Stallone movie, which is called Bullet to the Head, which was a, a box office disaster. Though in fact, as a as a as a small scale efficient action movie, it's pretty good, and it's directed by a great action director, Walter Hill. Um, and I wonder, actually, uh, I, I think um, uh, watching it, there were twenty minutes of trailers, as there are now. There were seven action movies, all of which were um, 
you know, uh, feti- gun fetishism. You know, it's all, every one of them is Bruce Willis carrying a gun that's larger, you know, than his head and gunfire and things exploding, all this. And I sort of wonder whether uh, um, that movie and the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that came out a couple of weeks ago did badly because in the wake of Sandy Hook, people are a little more squeamish um, about the celebration of violence for violence's sake with guns than they were. And I don't, I mean, it's just that, these are action movies and, you know, nobody wants to think about anything when they see an action movie and they don't want to watch this and say, gee, I, is the, you know, gun control is really an issue now. It's like I don't want to think about anything. I just want to watch explosions. But, you know, maybe having people shoot each other in the head with guns right now is not something I want to see. So I actually think there may be something, you know, otherwise going on. I wanted to say one final thing about what Rob said before about being a squish and how nobody – you know, and how uh, <laughs> conservatives seem to want to – this is a very big issue on the right and it's much more important than, than, than should be a throwaway. Uh, you know, the right lost this election, which means that it's too small to win elections at the moment. And yet there is a huge drive on the right to shrink what is the definition of conservative to a more limited definition. Uh, in other words, to say you're not really – Karl Rove's not really a conservative. This one isn't. That one isn't. You're not really. Yeah, you're yeah. bad. You're not. This is insane. This is insane. The results of the last election indicate that the right is too small. And if the right's response is to say what we need to do is get even smaller because we're being – because uh, b- there is ritual impurity that is entering – you know, our noble bathtub. Right. This right, is, right. this is madness. <laughs> it this is, is madness. But, but I just, in passing, I have to note that the pe- uh, many of the people who are saying that, in fact, I can th- kind of think of one who doesn't fit this description. So I'll even go out and say all the people who are saying that none of them has run for office or a campaign or worked at a statewide. None of them has any actual practical political experience, which apparently everyone now has. They all seem to be discontented bloggers with X number of followers with absolutely no consequence to their actions. Now, you and I may disagree on the Karl Rove strategy for this or that, but there is something about guys who are, who are actually trying to win elections, and, and, and which, which where it matters, obviously. We wouldn't be talking about this if winning elections wasn't important, that the idea that all these sort of like Monday morning quarterbacks know more about it because they've been watching Fox News and they've been on the surfing the internet is a little irritating. I mean it's a little irritating to me, not because I think that these guys are always right or I think their strategy is correct, but there is something about like, – this is what uh, you know, uh, people have said or saying more about Rush Limbaugh. I'm a Rush Limbaugh fan. I like Rush Limbaugh. He's fine. But you know, I wish he'd take some of his money and run for something because he's – apparently he knows everything about running for office. But I wish he you – know, the 61 million people voted for Mitt Romney. That's more listeners – than Rush Limbaugh has. Um, if every listener, if every listener, even casual listener to the Rush Limbaugh show voted Republican, we would be less popular than the Green Party. So it is hard to do, and the scale required is enormous. And so be, let, me, let me let me even let me even amend this a little further because um, I was at a dinner party where this came up, and somebody said, you know, who owns the center? And you know, for thirty years, it could reasonably be argued that the right owned the right, relatively mm-hmm. speaking, of the two camps owned the center because, you know, twice as many people say they're conservative as say they're liberal, and you know, the the right, uh, you know, took over the Congress and did blah all of this, and you know, won this election, won that election, and now 
the point is that whoever whoever wins a majority over a significant period of time has a claim to holding the center. And Obama, though Obama is arguably the most left-wing president ever, has a claim to holding the center that the right does not have. And the word center is a bad word among conservatives. And yet the, yet the truth is that if the right is not deemed to hold the center or to be appealing to the center or to be a position that is closer to the center than other positions, it will never win elections again. The center is by definition the moderate balance of you know of competing uh, interests. You buy that? You buy that, Jonah? Uh, in large part, I do. I mean, I I, I know that your um, your buddies with Mike Murphy, uh, Robin. I, I've heard Murphy give <laughs> that 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 speech many times about Rush Limbaugh. In fairness yeah. to some of the people on the right, I think uh, I I think I gave him the, the material. By the way, but go ahead. <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, I, I think a lot of the people on the there are a lot of people on the right who actually do run elections. And, you know, I mean, Jim DeMint and those guys, you know, there are a lot of hardcore Tea Party types who are making this argument who actually know how to win elections. Part of the problem, though, is that they know how to win elections in very, 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 very conservative places. Um, And, you know, the same column where I was talking about hucksters, I I made the point that I – and I think this is basically still right – is that the problem with the Republican Party right now isn't that it isn't conservative enough. It's that it's not persuasive enough. And the idea that somehow if we become 10% or 20% more conservative, that somehow we'll be more persuasive to the people who aren't persuaded by this allegedly watered-down version of conservatism just doesn't track logically. And you know, the, the, I'm all, I, I am personally all for purity tests at the strategic level. If your goal, <laughs> if your goal isn't in the long run, to make the country more conservative, to move our, uh, our economics and our politics more towards free market, conservative, libertarian policies, then I'm against you. But if you're, if you're for um, uh, a different tactic about how to get there, I'm all in favor of hearing what your version of an argument is, you know, what you think to, to do. And that's why I think some of this feeding on Karl Rove is kind of ridiculous, um, you know, Karl Rove's argument is that we want better candidates who can move this country rightward. And there are all these people saying that this is, this is, this is apostasy. We, he wants liberal Republicans. I mean, there, there aren't any liberal Republicans left. I want more liberal Republicans. I want them to be outnumbered by conservative Republicans. But it would be nice if at the House or in the Senate, right, if we had right. more liberal Republican senators, we would be in the major- the Republican Party would be in the majority in the Senate. And that would be a good thing. Well, this More is the rhino great... screams, Jonah. You buy, you buy... No, but but no, but I mean, what? In other words, as Jonah says, if what if what is ne- if what is needed is for the right to be more um, uh, persuasive, that actually means that the right has to speak to people who are not already in their own camp and win them over. That doesn't mean they can win liberals over. We're not talking about winning liberals over. We're talking about speaking to the great middle and convincing the great middle that the right has the better answers on how to govern the country and and lead the country forward and all of that. And and, um, there is a terrible confusion here between the need to occupy the middle and the idea that what you should do is abandon all your principles to do so. No one is advocating abandoning conservative principle, quite the opposite. But there is a difference between strategy and tactics you know, it's one thing to knock Dick Luger off. He was a senator for 36 years. He was 80 years old. He did, you know, he, he wasn't all that reliable a vote in, you know, in certain 
in certain circumstances. It's another to think that Dick Luger of Indiana is no different from Teddy Kennedy of Massachusetts. Right. That's deranged. That is a deranged idea. It, 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 it bears no relation to observable reality. Someone who votes with you 85% of the time is better than someone who votes for you 12% of the time. Right. That's what politics so, is about. Speaking of deranged reality, now we're coming up on a, a little, little, little beyond an hour, so we should wrap this up. I want to talk about something important um, that I think is probably uh, more – I mean I should have led it to the very end. The Oscars. Jonah, <laughs> Jonah, <laughs> Jonah, but those are John. We, we really we only have two or three minutes. But I guess surprise to Jonah first. Jonah, do, do you watch them? Uh, more often than not, yeah. Um, uh, but I, I'm not religious about them. You know, uh, I think <laughs> I, 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 I think they're more interesting than the Grammys. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, there you go. And and more interesting than the Tonys, but that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, John, you gonna watch? You're gonna watch. Come on, I have to watch. I, I go to a I go to a party every year where I have to watch. What was it a glamorous um, party? Are there celebrities there? Well, it is. It is a party hosted by best-selling author AJ Jacobs and his wife Julie. But uh, but it's not very glamorous. Okay. Uh, do you have any any hopes or, or fears? Oscar fears? I have neither hopes uh, nor fears. I don't really care. I think that it's entirely plausible that uh, Argo uh, is going to win. I think it's also plausible that Lincoln will end up winning despite losing everything in the run-up. And uh, I think the only uh, the only uh, absolute certainty is that Daniel Day-Lewis will win and Anne Hathaway will win and who cares otherwise. And it would be sort of fun if the 85-year-old French woman in the most depressing movie ever made one because she's 85 mm. and no one will ever see the movie and everybody comes out of it looking like they want to go and drink an uh, entire bottle of bourbon and pass out. Um, but, you know, otherwise, I heard really, a good, who, yeah. cares? who cares? Who cares? Catherine, I, Catherine Bigelow, who directed Zero Dark Thirty, is up for something. And uh, She's not up for something. She uh, the, wasn't the, the nominated. Movie the movie the is movie up. Is. Yeah. Yes. And um, the only joke I heard which was funny, which is that uh, whoa, uh, I, I bet waiting for, her cate- waiting for her movie's category to be called is this going to be torture for her? <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you one thing about Zero Dark Thirty. Okay. Wait, the okay. Actress- I was going to be the last joke, but okay, go okay. ahead. <laughs> right. The actress Jessica Chastain yeah. is nominated for Best Actress in Zero Dark Thirty. I don't know if you've seen Zero Dark Thirty. I haven't yet. She speaks see. about – she has about 19 lines of dialogue. She's really beautiful. She has red hair. She glowers prettily. There's no character. There's no performance. Nothing. I hope she wins because I like it when really bad things happen at the – that's my – my hope is for just ridiculous, preposterous things to happen. Well, you know, that's then I I I know what you're saying, but Tarantino should win thing. You know, yeah. silly things should happen. That that's always good. Right. Um, well, speaking of silly things, we got to wrap this up. Um, Joan, are you going to be anywhere? You want to plug your your latest appearance? Uh, I don't know. I'll be on special report on Friday night. I don't know. I got nothing. Uh, and John, you never go anywhere, so. I never right. go anywhere and I never do anything and I'm – it's really incredibly depressing. <laughs> like, it's like Amour. It's like the film Amour. Exactly right. <laughs> John put the words is Amour. Uh, fellas, great to talk to you. Talk to you soon. 
Okay. Bye, guys. Join the conversation.